we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. This is Mark Krikorian, the executive director of the center. And our guest today is someone with very in-depth knowledge of what's going on at the border. Brandon Judd is a Border Patrol agent, but he's also an official in the Border Patrol Union. I believe it's called the National Border Patrol Council. He'll correct me if I came up with the wrong name. But because he's a union official, he's freer to speak. They can't punish him or mess. Well, maybe they can mess with him, but he's freer to be able to talk about what's going on and what the consequences are of the administration's actions. And he's actually in a car. He's just been on the border. He's heading back from the border in South Texas and was kind enough to give us a little bit of his time to talk about what's going on. Welcome, Brandon. Thanks for joining us. Mark, good to be with you. And yeah, I'm speaking on behalf of the National Border Patrol Council, which then does allow me to be able to talk about the issues freely and honestly. And that's that's what's important. That's what we're looking for here. And I promise not to make any Let's Go Brandon jokes. (laughs) Why don't we start with a little bit of background for listeners on yourself? In other words, this is just speaking for yourself, not the union. How did you get into the Border Patrol? Sort of what's your backstory here? And then we can talk some about the issues. I grew up in the military. My father was retired as a lieutenant colonel in the military, so I moved around my whole life. But I'm originally from Arizona, just north of Tombstone. So I'm, I'm very familiar with the border, with the border issues. I um, mean, it's something that I've always been interested in. And, you know, law enforcement was just something that growing up, it was natural in my family. Uh, a lot of family members are law enforcement. So I always wanted to go into law enforcement. And the Border Patrol was just a natural fit with the knowledge that I had and, and where I was from. So I uh, was in college and applied for the Border Patrol and, you know, and the rest is history. And I'm, I'm very happy that I did. How many years you've been in? I've been a Border Patrol agent now for 24 years, and wow. I've been the president of the National Border Patrol Council for right at nine years. And uh, where have you been stationed over the years? Oh, I've been stationed all over. <laughs> um, I started my career in El Centro, California. From there, I, I moved over to uh, what was the NACO Border Patrol Station in Bisbee, Arizona. It's now called the Brian Terry Memorial Station. Right. It was an agent that was murdered by bandits, illegal aliens that were uh, a RIP crew that were set out to uh, rob those people that crossed the border illegally. And he was murdered by one of those RIP crews. And it's now the Brian Sherman Memorial Station. From there, I, uh, I went up to Maine, and I was at the Van Buren Border Patrol Station in Maine. And from Maine, I went to uh, Malta, Montana. I spent five years there, and now I'm back in Arizona. I'm in, in Wilcox, Arizona now. So that's pretty much all over, north and south, east yeah. and west, too. So uh, very interesting. Yeah. So what's different? about the border today? I mean, you've been doing this for almost a quarter century. How is this different? How does what we're seeing now over the last year, let's say, stand out from what you had dealt with and what you and the other agents had seen over the past 20, 25 years? Well, it's interesting because when I originally joined the Border Patrol in 1997, where I was stationed, 
in the El Centro sector. It happened to be the busiest sector at that time. And from there, when I, when I moved over to Tucson, Tucson had taken over as the busiest border patrol sector. And so I've had the opportunity to work in some of the busiest locations in the history of the border patrol. But back then, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, even in the um, early 90s, the mid 90s, the vast majority of everybody that we were dealing with were, were from Mexico. They were uh, single males for the most part. Every now and then you would get a single female. But for the most part, we were dealing with single males from Mexico. And uh, the difference at that time was migration was back and forth. They would come across the border and they would work here in the United States for several months, and then they would go back to Mexico, and then they would come back again. Today, it's completely different. Now people are crossing the border illegally, and they're staying here in the United States. And it's not just from Mexico. The United Nations identifies 195 different countries around the world, officially identifies 195 um, sovereign countries from around the world, and, and we're dealing with more than 151 of those countries. So we're not just dealing with people from Mexico. Uh, we're not just dealing with people from Central America, from the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. We're dealing with people from all over the world. And that is really scary. And that's something that is very different than what it was back then. You know, just a week ago in Yuma, they apprehended people from Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Libya, from all over the world. We get people from Senegal, Eritrea, you know, we, we're getting people from everywhere. I personally have apprehended a group from Poland, um, believe it or not. Wow. Those individuals were whiter than I am. I've apprehended people from Russia, from Brazil, from China. So we're dealing with people from all over the world. And that is very different than what it was um, in early in my career. And the fact that people are coming here to stay, not just to come to work for a couple months, go back, and then come back again. Now they're coming across, and they're coming here to stay. You kind of wonder what's wrong with the people from the other 40 countries that aren't sending people here now. What must those countries be? Maybe Monaco and San Marino, they're too small anyway. So you're talking about people from, it's basically, it's a United Nations of illegal immigration now in a way that really wasn't true before, and people coming with the goal of staying permanently. Has policy driven some of that? In other words, some of that obviously might just be, I don't know, forces beyond our control. How much of what we're seeing at the border do you think is driven by our policy decisions rather than things that are happening overseas? Policy is all of it. Even back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, since the beginning of my career, policy is everything. Back then, it's just simply because there were no employer sanctions. So if our government was not going to sanction employers. As long as that magnet existed where there were jobs that were available, um, people are going to cross the border illegally. That's just, it's natural um, it's, and it's understandable. You don't enforce the laws. If you don't sanction employers, then those jobs are going to be available. They're very low wage jobs and they depress the wages of United States workers. But that was the main driver of illegal immigration back then. Now the main driver is what we call the catch and release program. When we catch somebody, we arrest somebody for crossing the border illegally. They say that they fear to go back to their country. We release them with what we call a notice to appear, in which they're supposed to show up to court later on down the road, which they never do. And that's the magnet. That's the policy now that is driving so much of the illegal immigration. Now, I get consulted on the Hill by both Democrats and Republicans alike. I get consulted on the Hill all the time on what do we need? Do we need more resources? Do we need more infrastructure? Do we need more technology? And, and I happen to be a small government type of person 
And knowing what I have done, all that I have done, I can personally tell you we don't need to burden the taxpayer any more than what we are. All we need is policy. If we have the proper policy, we can secure the border with the resources that we have now. But if we don't have that policy, if we continue to release people, if people can just set one foot in the United States and I have to take them into custody and then release them or give them a reward for violating our laws, they're going to continue to come. Policy will control this. The proper enforcement of our laws will secure the border. Along those lines, the administration has recently restarted, grudgingly and under protest, but restarted the Remain in Mexico program, at least to some degree. Do you think that's going to have much effect? Or have you seen anything so far? It's pretty early still, but what are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I go back, there's very few times that you will ever see the government work at, you know, a very quick speed. You know, normally everything moves very, very slowly. But President Trump dealt with the issue of illegal immigration, and it was very high in 2019. So he looked at this, he consulted with a great many people. I happen to be one of those individuals. And, you know, everybody told him, as long as we continue to release people, they're going to continue to come. And so he came up with the Migrant Protection Protocols, or what's more commonly known as the Remain in Mexico policy, to which he stopped releasing people. He ended the catch and release. And it was like a light switch, right. the number of people that were crossing the border illegally. We dropped to historic lows under President Trump's leadership because of this single policy of stopping releasing people, stopping that reward, getting rid of that magnet. And the Biden administration got rid of it, and that's why we've seen illegal immigration explode. Now, they have said because the Supreme Court upheld a U.S. District Court judge's ruling, the Supreme Court upheld that saying that the administration had to reimplement the migrant protection protocols, but they're not going to do it. You know, they're going to do it piecemeal, a little here, a little there, but they're making too many carve-outs, and they're doing that because they know it has to fail. If it succeeds, if the migrant protection protocol succeeds, they're going to have to admit that they were wrong and that President Trump was right. They're going to have to go back and say, well, you know, Vice President Harris's root causes, they're not really the root causes. The root cause is here in the United States. And so they're not willing to do that. So as long as they only implement it and piecemeal, a little here, a little there, create carve-outs for certain segments of the population, certain countries, certain groups from those countries, as long as they do that, it's going to fail. And as long as it fails, then they don't have to admit that they were wrong. President Trump was right. Have you seen, I mean, in your own work, have you seen anybody sent back to Mexico to wait for their hearings? Is that happening in South Texas? Very few. That's what I was down here right. to look at it, see if, if in fact people are being enrolled into the MPP. And it's very few. It's a trickle. Again, that's what they're setting it up to. They're setting it up for failure. They talk about, well, we need to start slow. We need to do a pilot program. We don't need a pilot program. We ran this program for over a year. We know how to implement the program. We know what needs to be done. But this is the administration slow walking it, again, so that it fails, so that they don't have to admit that they were wrong. Interesting. And one of the other tools that President Trump flicked the switch on when the pandemic started is something called Title 42 expulsions. That's something where the public health emergency is declared. The Border Patrol is allowed to turn people around and send them back. No hearing, no nothing. And that was used during the pandemic pretty extensively. 
President Biden has been criticized by his own left-wing cadres for keeping that at least to some degree in place. What is your assessment of how that Title 42 policy is still working now? How much are they doing? Is it having an effect, et cetera? It's extremely important, but you used the key words. He's enforcing Title 42 to some extent. Right. Again, what he did was the moment he took office, he gave a great many carve-outs for certain individuals, for family units with children under the age of six. It was amazing. The moment he did that, it was amazing how many family units were crossing the border illegally. With children under the age of six. Yes. Yeah. They were claiming that their, their children were under the age of six. And, <laughs> and the burden of proof is on us to right. show that they're not under the age of six. And if we can't do that, we have to then treat that person as if he is, a he or she is under the age of six. And so it was just, it was amazing to see how quickly the criminal cartels, organized crime, how quickly they're able to adapt to the changes that we make in our policy here in the United States. And they adapted immediately. So Title 42, which again was to protect the American public to ensure that this disease was not spread, this virus was not spread in the United States by illegal aliens. And he completely and totally disregarded that to pander to his base. And when I talk about he, I'm talking about President Biden. You know, he completely disregarded that to pander to his base to the detriment of U.S. citizens. And that was extremely frustrating for those people that I represent. And they were extremely upset about it because they didn't feel like they could do their job properly and that, that the administration would have their back if they tried to do their job properly. Actually, I was going to ask about that precisely uh, next, which is, what do agents, what's the morale of agents? How have they been doing over the past year? You know, there's uh, complaints about how they're turned into Walmart greeters or a welcome wagon instead of actually enforcing the law. What's the sentiment among the regular agents? Because you're representing the actual guys in the field as opposed to the suits and the supervisors, as I understand. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that is correct. I, I've never seen morale lower in 24 years. If it wasn't for the great men and women that want to protect the United States, it would be very difficult to put that uniform on. It would be very difficult to go out and patrol the border. But these individuals, they believe that it's very important to do the best that they can for the citizens of this country. You look at law enforcement across the board. It doesn't matter whether it's border patrol agents, police officers in a certain city, sheriffs, Department of Public Safety. It doesn't matter. Highway patrol. Every one of us, we put on that uniform because we want to serve the American public. We want to protect our way of life. We want to protect our freedoms. Our freedoms are granted through a divine constitution and a divine bill of rights. But if the constitution and bill of rights is not upheld by the rule of law, those go away and our freedoms go away. And that's what law enforcement, that's what we believe in. We put that uniform on because we care about the American public. And if it wasn't for those great men and women, that truly care about the American public, it would be impossible to put that uniform on and go out and patrol the border. What are your relations like with local and state law enforcement? I assume it's pretty good in Texas, where you are now, but maybe not so much in California. How does, how does that work? How do Border Patrol agents navigate that? Yeah, I can't speak on behalf of the agency, but I can tell you what I see personally. Right. When you look at it, when you look at Texas, when you look at Arizona, the relationship that exists in Texas is off the charts. Very, very good. Governor Abbott is doing the best that he possibly can to use state resources to help 
secure the border than Arizona. And, you know, I, you know, Governor Ducey, he's doing better than New Mexico and California, but he certainly isn't doing as, as much as what Texas is doing. But there's still a very good relationship in the state of Arizona. It's no secret that blue states differ uh, greatly from red states as far as law enforcement and those that uphold the rule of law. And, you know, when you look at Arizona and Texas, it's night and day different than California and New Mexico as far as what those states want, what they're willing to do, and how much they want the rule of law to succeed in their state. From the perspective of actual guys out on patrol, what is their take on the physical barriers, the wall, the fence, what have you? You know, obviously, that was a big deal for President Trump. He got some of it built, and it got some of it, you know, they, they said replaced, but it was replacing worthless stuff with a real barrier. Other places, there are holes in the fence. We've been to some places where there's just a gap. They stopped construction. So for the actual agent out there where the rubber meets the road, as it were, what is their take on the utility of physical barriers? Physical barriers are extremely effective. And the better the barrier, the more effective it is. But it's effective for a specific reason. It doesn't stop anybody from claiming asylum. That physical barrier is not built right on the border. It's actually built a couple of feet into the United States. And so once somebody sets foot in the United States and they claim asylum, we have to take them into custody and we have to process them accordingly. And that's where the policy comes in place. So what, what President Trump gave us is he gave us wall and policy. He gave both. Once we had the policy and the wall, the wall allowed us to dictate where criminality took place, where those people that actually want to evade apprehension, not trying to give up, where the drugs come into the United States. It allows us to dictate where that takes place. And, and when we get to dictate, when we get to dictate to them instead of be reactive to the criminal cartels, it allows us to be a lot more effective. And when we're effective, then the American public is safe. The drugs don't flood in to our inner cities, to our suburbs, to our rural areas, and it doesn't kill thousands upon thousands of our children. That's why the wall is so effective. We dictate where criminality takes place. And when we do that, we are a lot more effective. Walls are extremely effective. And I'll just use an example. You know, one of the stations that I was assigned to, the, the Naco Border Patrol Station, before we had a physical barrier, in a short 56 linear mile of a stretch of border, we were making over 100,000 apprehensions a year. Wow. When we built the physical barriers, when, when those barriers were put in, and by the way, it was put in under an act, the Secure Fence Act, which Joe Biden voted for in favor of, when those walls went in, dropped from 100,000 to less than 10,000 apprehensions in that same stretch of border, extremely effective. The, the amount of drugs that were coming in were so much less than what they were prior to the wall. So they are extremely effective. They work. It's not archaic. It's not 15th century. It still works today, and, and we need more of it. So uh, what you're saying is that, to quote former governor, Texas Governor Perry, if you build a 30-foot wall, you know, there's a lot of people buying 31-foot ladders, and I assume that actually does happen anyway. I mean, I've seen some of those ladders, but that doesn't negate the effectiveness of the wall altogether, right? No, it doesn't. When you, when you don't have walls, that 21-foot ladder, they're only going to be able to cross two to five people before we get there and apprehend them. Right. Without those walls, they're able to cross hundreds of people without us getting there. You know, that wall greatly increases the amount of time that it takes to cross into our country illegally. And the more time that it takes to cross into our country illegally, 
the more it allows us to react and respond to that area to take those individuals in custody. Yeah, you can have a 20, 21 foot ladder and you can climb over the wall, but that 21 foot ladder is going to take an awful long time for you to make it over. And it's going to give me the time to get there to take those individuals into custody. And you'd mentioned drugs before. Most people kind of think of the flow of aliens and the flow of drugs as separate things. And there probably is is clearly some overlap, but is there an effect on the Border Patrol's ability to stop drugs when there's such an enormous flow of illegal immigrants as we're seeing today? No, that's exactly what the cartels are doing right now. They recognize that if they can pull our agents out of the field by flooding a specific area with illegal border crossers that are claiming asylum, what that does is that causes agents to then respond to that area. Those agents then have to take those people that cross border illegally back to the station, and it pulls agents out of the field. And when you pull the agents out of the field, it creates artificial gaps in coverage. And when you have those artificial gaps, the cartels then are able to run their higher value products in those gaps that they created. And those higher value products can be anywhere from opioids to fentanyl to criminal aliens to aliens from special interest countries. You know, those are their higher value contraband, and they're very effective in creating those gaps by flooding us with asylum seekers. That really did strike me when I'd seen it is that I was actually in West Texas, El Paso and New Mexico a few months ago on a border tour, and there were remarkably few agents driving around. One place where there's actual fence, and there was actually stacks and stacks of fence units that were just sitting there collecting dust because the construction had stopped. But the fence there had, was, was up, and I spent an hour there right up against the fence, and nobody showed up. And that's never happened before. I've never seen that because any place I've been, if I've been right at the fence, usually somebody comes at some point, drives by, you know, how you doing, sir, what's up, that sort of thing. And I mean, I appreciate it. I'm happy they do it. But this time, we just did not see a lot of agents out patrolling because presumably they were all on diaper duty. Yeah, you've been out to the border on countless occasions, and you've been going out there for many, many years. You come out to the border when, when the, the Border Patrol only had 10,000 agents. Right. And back then, you would have seen a lot more agents that were in the field on the line than what we have now, even though we have 20,000 agents. Um, you go out there and you'll see less than half of the number of agents than what we had out there you know, in the mid-2000s. And, and that's simply because the cartels have become so adept at changing to our posture at understanding how they can dictate to us what our enforcement posture is going to be, which should never be allowed. It should always be law enforcement that dictates to the criminals what is going to happen, how it's going to happen, how things are going to run, especially on the border. And, and in this particular case, the cartels are winning. They're winning that battle. They are dictating to us. We are reacting to what they are doing. Interesting. Now, we've got three years left in this administration. Are you hopeful? You think we're going to be able to turn this around at some point with different policies? Are you looking at this glass half full, half empty, a black pill, white pill? What's your take on what's the future? The only way things are going to change is if politicians that have made it their career think that they're going to lose their reelection. You know, that's what drives 
politicians is, am I going to get reelected? And if they believe that they're going to lose an election, they will change on what they feel needs to be done. Now, what concerns me is I do not believe that President Biden thinks that he's going to have another term, whether that's for health reasons, whether that's for reasons that he knows that he, he is so unpopular right now. But this administration is acting like it's a one and done administration. It's acting like it's a one term. Like it's lame duck, in other words. Yeah. 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 It, it really is. I mean, go go back to President Obama. In his first four years, it, he was fairly decent on the border. He wasn't great, but he wasn't horrible. In his last four years, when he was lame duck, when he knew that he didn't have to run again, he was horrible, absolutely horrible. And and this administration is acting like it is, in fact, the lame duck administration. It's acting like it wants to get as many far left policies uh, or laws passed as quickly as they possibly can and then right off into the sunset. That's what they're acting. So from this administration standpoint, I don't have a whole lot of hope that things are going to change from the local level, from U.S. senators, to U.S. congressmen. Yeah, I think that there can be changes there. I think that those individuals, if they think that they're going to lose an election, they will change their stance. Interesting. Well, that's so that is kind of optimistic, I guess, in one, if you think about it in one way. We got a few minutes left. And one of the things I wanted to ask is, you know, explain for the listeners, even for me, really, what is it that the Border Patrol Union does? In other words, why does the Border Patrol need a union? And what is it that you guys actually do? Well, we are not a typical union. We do not uh, negotiate wages. We don't get to do that. We get to be the voice of the agents to, one, to let the American public know what's going on, two, to discuss issues with elected officials, whether that's uh, U.S. senators, U.S. representatives, state governors. We get to discuss those issues, and we also get to let the public know what is going on. And on top of that, we look out for the interests of the agents, whether that's in negotiating policies with the agency, whether providing them attorneys, if they're being sued, if they're under a false disciplinary proposal, providing attorneys. So there's a lot that we do. We, we look out for all of their interests, and it's the agents that determine what I do for them. They're the ones who give me my marching orders, and then I execute those orders. Interesting. Well, good. I appreciate your time. I know you're busy. You're basically just at the border right now or near the border. And I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I hope next year you and other Border Patrol agents will have an easier time, although I'm skeptical that's the way it's going to happen. But, you know, stick to it and keep up the good work. Well, I appreciate it. And on behalf of the National Border Patrol Council, also, I wish you a very Merry Christmas. All of your listeners, also a very Merry Christmas. Let's be optimistic. Let's hope that change is coming. And if it does, we will secure the border. Excellent. Thank you, Brandon Judd, president of the National Border Patrol Council. It's the Border Patrol Agents Union, giving us a look literally from the border, which is where he is now. Thanks. Thanks. And finally, I wanted to draw your attention to a new report from a group called the Economic Policy Institute on the H-1B program and the consequences of H-1B. EPI, the Economic Policy Institute, is a labor union-oriented think tank. They are part of the left. And because of that, they really aren't free to critique immigration in general, and in fact, have spoken out in favor of amnesty. But the one area where it is permissible for organized labor and those affiliated with it 
to critique immigration policy is guest worker programs. And EPI has done important work on critiquing guest worker programs. And their new report is about a particular company and one of the largest users of the H-1B visa program and how it is underpaying. It is essentially using the H-1B to get cheap labor. And this has always been a talking point, and there's plenty of evidence for it, but this is another important piece of evidence. What happened was there's a whistleblower lawsuit ongoing against a company called HCL Technologies. Hindustan Computers Limited is what it was originally called, HCL. And what the company does, it's based in India, and it's the Body Shop, which is the nickname for a company that doesn't actually do any IT work, but gets lots of H-1B visas, and then rents out those workers to big companies. It's an outsourcing company. Their H-1B workers are used by Disney, FedEx, Google, and other big companies. And in analyzing this internal document about what they're paying their people, EPI concluded that HCL, this company, is using H-1B visas to underpay the foreign workers by at least $95 million. And it recommends a variety of remedies, but it's important, I think, to understand that what EPI has uncovered is probably not an abuse of the H-1B visa system. The HCL may have broken some laws, uh, I don't know, but the main problem here is the H-1B program itself. In other words, companies not abusing it, but using it the way it's intended. There was a, one of our fellows, John Miano, who's an attorney who studies these issues, did a post at our website explaining how the law for H-1Bs looks like it's protecting American workers and making sure that H-1Bs aren't being paid less so as to undercut or replace American workers. And yet, the same statute contains other provisions, loopholes, that essentially make those protections meaningless. They render them moot. So this is an important study that shines light on not just individual abuses of the H-1B program, but the systemic problem with H-1B. In other words, that the way it is written in the law needs to be changed because the Labor Department and Homeland Security can investigate all they want and can sanction companies, you know, fine them or bar them from using the program for a certain amount of time. And that's, those are important measures that need to happen to make sure that companies follow the rules. But it's the rules themselves that have to be fixed. One of the most important changes would simply be to issue H-1B visas when there are more takers than there are available visas to issue them based on the highest salary and then work your way down. Because companies that are willing to pay very high salaries are demonstrating that they actually really want these people because that worker has particular skills that they need and will create value. The way it's done now is by lottery, where it's purely random and employers submit requests for way more H-1B visas than they even want 
in order to get enough winning entries that they can then use them. It's a ridiculous system, and simply changing the way H-1B visas are issued without even changing the law would be a significant step in the right direction. But the real problem here is that the H-1B visa is designed by tech lobbyists to enable companies to import cheap labor, and that's what Congress needs to fix if and when we get a Congress that is interested in preventing the undercutting of American workers, which we do not seem to have right now. That's all for this week. This is Mark Krikorian wishing everyone a Merry Christmas, and we're not going to have an episode next week, the week of Christmas, but we will have one the following week. It'll be a roundup of the immigration news of the prior year, and then we'll start a whole new year of episodes of parsing immigration policy. This is Mark Krikorian signing off.